In this episode, I am going to be reading Chapter 10, Tuku and the Pastry Cook. Put your mind to rest. Take a deep breath through your nose. Hold it. Relax every, everything in your body while exhaling slowly. Another deep breath through the nose. Hold it. Release over every bone in your body. Feel yourself sinking into the bed and listen to the story as it unfolds. Tuku had saved seven cakes, but Satusai still did not come. He decided to eat the first of the seven because it had become quite stale and dry. The next day, he ate the second, and on the third day, he ate the remaining five. He had discovered that the cakes ought to be eaten fresh while the hot fat was still dripping from them. But he had to admit that they tasted quite good even when they were not so fresh. Now that there are no cakes left, I suppose she'll come, he said to himself. But she did not come. Tuku sat unhappily under the pastry cook's street stall. The pastry cook was a funny big man with close cropped hair, protruding lips and a thick flat nose. He had a big pot of sizzling fat which stood in the street where everyone could see. He threw in the dough which sank to the bottom of the pot but soon came up again blowing bubbles and there were the cakes all golden brown and ready to eat. With a laugh The pastry cook fished them out and told everyone near at hand how good they were. His words never failed to make Tuku's mouth water. The pastry cook had many customers, but he sold the cakes for so little that he was still poor. Tuku found this new life of his a change for the better. The old man often came to see him. He now had plenty to eat, cakes 
and good tasty rice. And instead of having to sit in front of a vat and rinse yawn until his shoulders ached, he squatted on the warm paving stones underneath the pastry cook stand and watched the life of the town. And what a lot there was to see! Before many days had passed, Tuku knew all the traders in the street. He knew the hot water cellar with his huge cans, the porters and the melon sellers, the mules that drew the old rice carts and the rickshaw coolies. He knew them all and he would have liked them to know him but this was not allowed. The old man had strictly forbidden him to talk to anyone for fear he might be discovered and have to go back to the factory. Not even the pastry cook had been let into this secret. All he knew was that the boy was being hunted by wicked men and for that reason was not allowed to show himself. When anyone came to the stand and stayed suspiciously long, the pastry cook shifted from one foot to the other. This was a signal for Tuku to crawl back as quick as he could to the potter's shop. This had happened twice, but on each occasion, it had been a false alarm. The pastry cook was a careful man, quick to scent danger. When the old man came, he went into the porter's shop. Then the pastry cook stamped twice, and Tuku heard the signal and went along to see him. The pastry cook the potter and the old man were all close friends. Tuku would have been quite contented with his new life had he not felt that something was lacking. At first, he could not make out what it was. He had enough to eat and drink, a bed to lie on, the pastry cook had taken him to his house. No one hit him. He was not made to do heavy work that was too much for his strength. At last, he told the old man his trouble. Perhaps you miss the beautiful eating bowl that you had to leave behind in the factory, the old man suggested. No, it's not that, said Tuku. Perhaps it's the little flute, he said. No, I don't think so. For a time, the old man was silent. He seemed to be deep in thought. Then he asked, Do you think it could be Satu Sai?
Yes, exclaimed the boy, and he clapped his hands for joy at having discovered what he wanted. But a second later, he was sad again. Why doesn't she come? he asked. She promised to, you know. It's because she can't, replied the old man. I go up and down outside the gate every evening, but the overseer never closes an eyelid, however long she plays. She does play on the flute, then, asked Tuku. Yes, said the old man. Perhaps she will come tomorrow. But Satusai did not come the next day, and Tuku was in despair. I must see her again, he said to himself over and over again. He stretched out on the pavement, closed his eyes, and refused to stir. The old man came to the pastry cook stand and asked why Tuku had not come to the potter's shop. But Tuku still refused to move. The evil days are come, said the old man. Why didn't you listen to me? The whole of the south has been blown to pieces. They are dropping bombs and are coming nearer every day. There'll soon be an end to pastry making. Tuku heard these words, but he did not understand them. The old man shook his head mournfully. Tuku saw this quite plainly, for he had raised himself to a kneeling position and looked up between the pastry cook's legs. The old man's beard tossed to and fro and he seemed very agitated. He soon went away, quite forgetting about Tuku in his distress at the thought of a war in China. What was he talking about? Tuku asked the pastry cook when the old man had gone. War, said the pastry cook gloomily. His whole manner had suddenly changed. He no longer laughed when he fished the cakes out of the pot. He no longer stamped his feet. He gave up praising his wares showing no interest in what he was doing. He baked one cake after another and piled them up into a heap. When the heap threatened to collapse, he began another. The people in the street could hardly recognize him. What's wrong with our pastry cook? They asked him. War replied the pastry cook. This one word had changed the whole town.
The gaiety gave place to gloom. No one laughed. The rickshaw coolies ran heavily between their shafts. Every face was solemn and full of fear. Every face except Tuku's. He was not in the least interested in war. Besides, he could think only of Satu Sai. He could imagine her crouching over the dying vat, her shoulders drooping forward, her back bent. He could see her rinsing the yarn and stirring the tanning liquid with her bare arms. He knew that he could not wait longer with these pictures in his mind. No matter what happened, he must set off and find the factory. If the overseer caught him, well, he would put up with it. And if he was beaten, he would bear it in silence. He must find Sadusai and help her. Without making a sound, Tuku slipped away. A moment or two later, the pastry cook was seriously alarmed when he turned around to hand the boy a cake and found that he had gone. But by this time, Tuku was running through the streets on his way to Satu Sai. In this episode, I am going to be reading chapter 11 of The Child of China, The Air Raid. Put your mind to rest. Take a deep breath through your nose. Hold it. Relax every, everything in your body while exhaling slowly. Another deep breath through the nose. Hold it. Release over every bone in your body. Feel yourself sinking into the bed and listen to the story as it unfolds. puzzled by what he saw. The people were moving about much more quickly than usual. They talked about war and the wicked enemy, threw their arms in the air and wept and cried. 
Tuku couldn't understand it. The wicked enemy? That must be the overseer. Or two overseers. Or three? Or all the overseers from all the factories? They must all be wicked, and therefore wicked enemies. Tuku ran on farther. When would he find the factory? Bombs, the old man had said. Bombs? What were bombs? Tuku sighed. There was so much that he couldn't understand. Everyone pushed him aside. A young fellow stumbled over him, as though he were a stone lying in his way and shouted to him to get off home. A woman who had heard this began to cry. She asked him what a little boy was doing out in the street at such a time and told him to go back. Tugu got up and rubbed his knee. It hurt him badly, but it didn't matter. He thought of Satu Sai. Satu Sai was his mother. Satu Sai was his home. The people must be the wicked enemy. They got in his way and kept him from getting to Satu Sai. He couldn't understand what was wrong with all these people. They threw themselves on the ground and sobbed. They picked up their children and pressed them to their hearts. They begged and pleaded. Many of them came out of their houses with all their belongings on their backs. Tuku saw tables and chairs sleeping mats and tea things as they hurried past. If only he could understand the meaning of it all. He thought of Satu Sai's stories about the terrible flood. But the river was flowing as quietly as ever between its banks. It could hardly be a flood. Tuku walked on farther. He was limping because he had struck his knee against a stone when he'd been knocked over. All at once, he came to a full stop and had to lean against a wall. Something had hit his leg and it was burning with pain. Go on, go on, shouted the crowd. Tuku hobbled along, wondering why these people were running away from the wicked overseers. He thought it would have been far better to get a hold of them and throw them into prison. Then Sadusai would not have to go to the factory and everything would be all right. But... He was only a little boy and hmm, no one seemed interested in his opinion. They all fled past him and he struggled on alone. 
At last he reached the factory. He knew it by the tea house with the red lamp at the corner of the street. If it hadn't been for the tea house, Tuku would not have been sure that it was the right factory. For the factory, too, had changed. The building was there, just as it had always been, but the windows were covered over and it was deadly silent in the yard. At first, Tuku was delighted that he could stand for a long time outside the gate without being seen by overseers. Aha, he thought, perhaps he has been caught and put in prison. In spite of this comforting thought, he didn't quite dare to go in. The place was completely deserted. He half expected to see the overseer walk across the yard, but he did not appear, and the factory was curiously still. Usually, the hum of the weaving looms could be heard in the street, but now there was not a sound. Tuku walked round the outside of the factory. The silence made him uneasy. He thought perhaps he could find a side entrance, because he couldn't bear to cross the great empty yard at the front. He could not find another entrance, but he did find his flute. At first, he could not believe his eyes. There it lay, the beautiful little flute made of ivory, which the old man had given him. It was trodden into the dirt, and no one had picked it up. Tuku saw by the footprints on the ground that people had hurried by and right over the foot. He was amazed. Ordinarily, one never even found a cigar stump or a dead match stick in the street. Anything and everything was picked up. He could not understand why they had overlooked his beautiful little flute. He picked it up, wiped the dirt off it, and was about to put it to his lips to see if he still knew how to play, when he heard a curious throbbing noise. He raised his head in surprise. The noise was not coming from the factory. It was coming from the sky, and it was getting louder and louder. Tuku took little notice of it at first. Black spots high up in the bright blue sky. There was nothing more to be seen. He was about to raise the flute to his lips a second time. When it struck him, 
that something must be wrong. How came the flute to be in the dirt? Sartusai had had it. Last, she had played on it every evening. What had happened to Sartusai? The humming noise grew louder. Tuku looked up again. What he saw quite reassured him. The black spots had become silver birds, aeroplanes. Sadusai had called them. Tuku knew of aeroplanes and anything he knew about, he didn't mind. Silver birds were good birds. They settled on the river and brought little white balls to make the people well. Tuku remembered now the stories Sartusai had told about the flood. So, everything she had said was right. And he had never believed her. This worried him very much. People must be ill, and that was why the silver birds had come with medicine. He smiled, importantly, for now he knew the reason for all the strange things that had been happening around him. At this moment, he noticed that one of the silver birds was dropping notice before he had time even to wonder what it was. There was a terrific noise that shook the earth. Houses fell over, burning roofs were thrown into the air, the factory collapsed, and out of the cracks, crashing ruins, came men, women, and children running to save their lives. In their headlong flight, they rushed past Tuku, who lay with his face to the ground, motionless. The flute had fallen from his hand, and he was half buried in dirt. The people fled past him, just as they had fled past the little flute. Most of them had no time to even jump over him. It was a miracle that he was not trampled to death. After a long time, there were no more footsteps to be heard. The earth grew steady and quiet again. The humming soon died, and Tuku made an effort to raise himself. He found that he could not. He screamed with pain when he tried to move his leg, but no one heard him. He pressed his forearms on the ground and rolled himself over on his back. It hurt him terribly, and he cried out with the pain. But now he could see the sky. There was no change in the sky except that the silver birds had gone. It was the same blue 
unending sky that it had always been. Tuku turned his head carefully, then he turned it to the left and saw the factory in ruins. It now had neither roof nor walls. The weaving looms lay in the yard, burning, and the vats had been hurled out. They were half charred and gave out a horrible smell. Tuku sobbed piteously. He felt lost and frightened. What had happened? Where was Satu Sai and why didn't she come to help him? Was this the war that the old man and the pastry cook had been talking about? Where were the pastry cook and the potter? Where was the kind old man? Had they all run away and left him behind? Then he caught sight of his little flute. It, too, lay in the dust and couldn't do anything to help itself. He stretched out his hand and drew it toward him. Then he put it to his lips and began to play. Satu Sai was lying unconscious under a beam which had fallen on her in the factory. She was dreaming. She dreamt of home. An enormous flood had laid waste the land and destroyed the crops and hundreds of boats were on the river. But no one was wailing or screaming. That's not right, said Satu Sai in her dream. The people ought to wail and scream. They've no houses now and no fields. Her mother smiled and her father pointed heavenwards. He looked solemn but perfectly calm. Satu Sai hardly knew him. Raising her eyes, she saw that the sky was as thickly covered with aeroplanes as the river was with boats. They are coming to help us, said Yu Ling, Satu Sai's youngest brother. But Satu Sai was still puzzled. That's not right she said only one silver bird comes when there's a flood with not enough medicine for us all then there's hunger and disease i know all about it because i've been through it once already at this the two eldest brothers shook their heads saying you'll see Sato sigh how many are coming? You are very ignorant, Satu Sai. You don't know that 
there are hundreds and hundreds of aeroplanes coming to help us. But Satusai got quite angry in her dream and violently contradicted her brothers. It's not true. They're not bringing us help. They're bringing bombs and the wicked enemy. The brothers laughed at their stupid little sister. Who told you that story, Satusai? They asked. Do you know what bombs are anyway? No, said Satusai, I don't. But the people in the factory know. They said they have come to destroy the country. The brothers merely shook their heads again and said, Satusai is telling us fairy tales. She knows nothing of the world. What's that? cried Satusai indignantly in her dream. I know nothing of the world. I know nothing, then, about your selling me so that you could build yourself a new hut. Be quiet, said the brothers. You don't know what you're saying. What are you thinking of? Since when have little children been sold? But it's true, protested Satusai. Father did sell me. I've been beaten in the factory, and time after time, I've fallen over. I've been so tired, and I've not been able to sleep at night for the pain I've had from the heavy work. The two brothers turned away from her indignantly. Don't listen to her, Yuling, they said to the youngest brother. It's not true what she says. Do you think that that would be allowed? Satusai stretched out her hand and pointed with her finger at a big, broad-shouldered man. That's he, she whispered. That's the man who hid me. He took my little flute away and threw it out the window and it was Tuku's flute. He's wicked. I don't see any wicked man, said Yuling reprovingly. And indeed, the overseer came up to Sadusai, gave her a friendly smile and said, Here's your flute, little lotus flower. And in his other hand, he held the brand new eating bowl and he asked Yuling if he had seen Tuku. He simply must find him, he said, as it was Tuku's bowl. Satusai felt ashamed in her dream of having called the overseer a wicked man, for he was clearly a good one. She saw that she had been unfair all round, for the silver bird settled on the water 
and distributed so much food and medicine that there was not only enough, but more than enough for everyone. I should never have thought it possible, said Sartusai. Then she heard a piteous cry. Now, we shall see whether everything is true or not, she thought. She sat quite still in her dream and listened to the crying, for she knew who it was. It was Tuku, who had been left behind in a house and was frightened now of all the water. There's a child crying, she exclaimed, and to her amazement, her mother heard it and called to her father. There's a child crying. The father, grasping his pole, drove the boat toward the spot where the crying child came from, and all the people on the boats who had heard the crying came to help. There's a child crying, they called to one another, and they all wanted to be the first to rescue it. They brought it out of the threatened house and comforted it with words of love. But the child stretched out its little arms to Sadu Sai and said, Tuku, Tuku. Sadu Sai did not know what to do. She knew what would happen. Her mother would scold her, and her father would say that Sadu Sai and Tuku had better be drowned in the river. She bowed her head so as not to see the little outstretched arms, but her mother took little Tuku in her arms, brought him to Sartusai and said, You keep him. He belongs to you because you were the first to hear him crying. Sartusai was so astonished that she hardly knew what to say. The last time I saved Tuku, you nearly beat me, she said. Why is everything different now? And why was everything so bad and wicked before? That was because of the hunger and the poverty, said her mother. But don't worry. Everything is all right now. Whereupon, Sartusai humbly lowered her gaze, and the next time she looked up, there was Tuku sitting with his legs crossed in the front of a huge pile of cakes, which disappeared into his mouth one after the other. Then Tuku laughed and threw himself on the ground. He was wearing a pretty little red jacket. His cheeks were chubby, his arms were rounded, and he kicked out his little legs 
in all directions from sheer good spirits. How changed he is, said Satu Sai in her dream. She had quite a different memory of him in her mind. Hollow cheeks, tired eyes, thin arms and scraggy legs. She thought there must be some mystery in what her mother had said about hunger and poverty. So she asked timidly, Mother, isn't there any hunger now? No, not so long as people help each other, said her mother. And no poverty. When people help each other, it is not so bad. And do people help each other? Asked Satu Sai. At this moment, the sounds of the flute came into her dream and Sadhu Sai opened her eyes. She found herself lying underneath the fallen beam and realized that she had been dreaming. Above her was the vault of the heaven. Around her lay a mass of broken machines, vats and tangled yarn. She wondered if she was still dreaming and tried to raise herself, but the beam made it impossible. She listened to the flute. Its tone was becoming more and more plaintive. She knew at once that Tuku was calling. Tuku needed her. With all her strength, she pushed the beam aside and crawled out from under it. She was quite unhurt. She knew now that she had been dreaming. She listened to the flute to find out where the sound came from and looked all around her. She gradually remembered everything. All day long, the men in the factory had been talking about the aeroplanes that were coming. They had covered up the windows and stopped working. The aeroplanes she had understood, but they had said an air raid. She had not understood what it meant and had not dared to ask anyone. It must have been the air raid that had come and ruined everything. But she still could not understand what had happened. But she had no time to give it much thought. She knew she must find Tuku. Sadly, all good things must come to an end, so I bid you good night, sleep tight, and don't let the bed bugs bite.